This is God's word. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes down to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and the younger of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Our gracious God, as we come into this room, we come from very different places, and yet we look to one story today, and we look for words that might speak to our lives. Um, as someone before our service in our pre-service prayer time prayed that I would, uh, that I would be able to speak your words, and that all of us would be able to hear them. Um, and apply them, that is, I'm basically praying the same thing and asking you uh, to answer that prayer. We come to this message and we look for grace, our lives, our hearts long for it. We long for the divine embrace which settles our hearts, whether we come uh, with a very religious background or whether we come very, from a very non-spiritual or non-religious background, whether we come with a lot of doubt or a lot of faith or a lot of hurt or a lot of happiness this morning. We all long for the same thing. So now show us that grace. May we encounter it and may it transform us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, City Life Church is connected to a tradition of churches called uh, Reformed or all titled Reformed um, and given that tag. So it, it's one of those tags like you might say Lutheran or Presbyterian or Reformed. And this joke probably people have applied it to all of their backgrounds, all of their traditions, um, because so many church traditions end up being um, having this schismatic element to them, like every generation someone's breaking off and starting a new one, you know, the new better one as opposed to the one they left. And so there's a tradition of that in the Reformed tradition. And so the joke goes like this, this Reformed guy gets uh, stranded on an island in the middle of nowhere and he's just there for years and years and years and years. And finally, people find him and they rescue him. And as they're leaving the island and taking him to the boat that they're going to take him away on, they look back and go, wow, you've really made a lot for yourself here. There's like these different buildings here. And they see, they see that there's three buildings lined up. And they say, wow, so what's that first one right there? And he says, oh, that's my house. I built that you know, pretty early on. That's where, I, that's where I live. And they say, well, what's that one right next to it? And he says, well, that's, that's my church. 
And, uh, you know, I'm very happy that's the church I built. And then they say, well, what's that third one? And he says, that's the church I used to go to. Um, I love that joke because it's, um, you know, he's already cut off from everyone. He's already alienated, but he can't help but continue this, you know, this habit, this long-learned habit of cutting himself off, even though there's no one to cut himself off from. It's an alienation joke, and we're talking a little bit about alienation today. On the less humorous side of things, I don't know if you've watched a prison movie or a show about jail or prison lately, like the new one that's out called Orange is the New Black. Genji Cohen is the creator, and it's available on Netflix. I've already burned through the first season. And um, all of these portrayals of prison, they always at one point seem to point to uh, what the, you know, the lingo is, the shoe, you know, secure uh, housing unit or solitary confinement. So in, in Orange is the New Black, for example, it's just another time where when you start to live into what prison is like, at least the Hollywood portrayal of it, you, you realize how alienating of an environment it is. You're cut off from family, you're cut off from your hopes, your dreams, your job, everything you had set up, all your hard work in life, and you're cut off from it. Even if you go and visit the jail downtown uh, and visit someone there, entering through the different locks and doors, you ex- start to feel it palpably, the, the uh, culture of alienation and being cut off. Um, well, so there's also this solid, you know, if, as if that's not enough, there's the shoe, there's the solitary confinement where you're cut off completely from all human contact and your food is shoved through a slot in the door and you don't get to see the outside and your visits are um, cut off as well because, you know, maybe you didn't behave in the first layer of alienation and you needed to get punished and sent to the shoe. Um, I'm going to predict, I'm just going to put it out there, kind of take a gamble and predict that most of you aren't coming this morning with a big, long prison uh, background. I know a lot of you, that's why I can say that. And, you know, most of us are coming in here with uh, experiencing alienation in all kinds of other ways, all kinds of different ways. And, and yet, in some ways, uh, that picture of solitary confinement is a great image. It's a great metaphor. It's a, it just resonates with all of our experiences of alienation, being cut off, of being disconnected. You might come this morning and you look at your, um, your dating history and you say, boy, there's a test case in alienation. You might, you, might, you might say your neighborhood, just for whatever reason, you know, you say, my neighborhood is a place where there's actions of alienation getting flown back and forth across the street. Or you look at your family and you say, oh, I just spent time vacationing with my extended family or visiting extended family. Well, there's some stories of alienation that I was brought back into when I went there. Or, you know, somebody else says, my workplace is, a, is just an environment of, of alienation. I can't avoid it the culture there. And I would say all of this from the shoe all the way to these, you know, to your neighbors not getting along. All of that is lowercase a alienation. And our story today really is dealing with uppercase all caps alienation. A lot of times in our life, um, a, a lowercase a alienation experience that we're in finally alerts us and wakes us up to the fact that we have a deeper 
much broader, much more pervasive and constant alienation, capital A. And in a sense, that's an opportunity, just like today is an opportunity. Excuse me. Because all of us, the Bible would say, all of us live all the time um, being affected by a deep, pervasive disconnect from God and from God's love and from God's grace. And if you let that go untreated all your life, the two are related. So that it's safe to say that if you go all your life untreated on the capital A alienation, you're going to be stuck in uh, cycles and habits and routines of disconnect in your small a relationships and situations in this world. As opposed to what you maybe imagine might be possible, that you'd be you grow into a person who exudes from the inside out actions that push against alienation and solve alienation and reconcile with people, that that would come out naturally. Don't you want that? That's what the story actually promises. As we look at one of the most important stories in all of Christian history and all of the Bible, one of the most pivotal, momental, all of the, the, the rich beliefs of the Christian church hinge on this story. It, Christianity wouldn't be the same if this story didn't exist. And so as we look at it, I'm, we're just going to kind of walk through it. I don't have some markers to give you ahead of time of what the points are, but we'll walk through it fairly quickly. And one of the first things you notice is that the gospel writers, when they tell this story, you notice right away as we're getting to the time of Jesus is, Jesus is going to die on the cross, the gospel writers want you to know that it got very dark. In fact, it was dark in the middle of the day, so it was, it was very unusual. It wasn't explained by anything obvious. And some people have tried to, to give some sort of natural explanation to it. That's not at all the intent of the, the writers who tell us a story, that, that there's some way that you can understand it naturally or some things aligned or some eclipse or something like that. Those all really don't line up. So you're forced to say, well, what are they trying to say? What's the point? Why are we learning that it was dark at the time when Jesus suffered the worst and died on the cross? Why was it dark? And you begin to look back and you say, you know, at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, we read that the earth was formless and void and there was darkness over all of the surface of the world. And then God came and said, let there be light. So God shows up and brings light into darkness. And if you just go a little further and pinpoint one other little marker to help understand this, you look at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, and that's where we have what some scholars would say is sort of an unraveling of creation. When these people of Egypt counteract God's plan to redeem you know, his chosen people, then these plagues get carried out against Egypt, but it reads very much like the unraveling of nature and of creation, um, culminating really right before the last one, in the plague of darkness, where it is dark, completely dark, in all of Egypt for three days. But with God's chosen people, the Israelites, it's light. And they live right amidst, they have their own little community right amidst Egypt. So it's, you see what's happening? God comes to, comes to the world and brings light. God removes himself and it's dark except he hasn't removed himself from his chosen people, Israel. What's the saying about our story today? It's, dark, it's completely dark for three hours. Not the three days of Egypt, but now three hours. 
in the, in the um, chosen son, Jesus, is on the cross. What's being said here, God is removing his presence. His, he's disconnecting. He's pulling away from Jesus. Um, it's very easy not to center our lives around God and to, in a sense, be living in a sort of unnoticed, unexamined spiritual darkness. This is, this is just true of me and everyone else. And uh, the writer, Tim Keller, and preacher, pastor, I quote him a lot up here. Let me give, there's a quote in the worship guide. So let me, let me read that. He says, Physical darkness brings disorientation, but according to the Bible, so does spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness comes when we turn away from God as our true light and make something else the center of our life. Let me extend that quote and give you a little more. He says, God, the Bible says, is the source of all truth and all life. If you orbit around God, then your life has truth and vitality. You are in the light. But if you turn away from God and orbit around anything else, your career, your family, your, a relationship, as the source of your warmth and hope, the result is spiritual darkness. You're, you are turning away from the truth, away from life towards darkness. When you are in spiritual darkness, although you may feel your life is headed in the right direction, you are actually profoundly disoriented. I don't know if you've ever had that realization before. We can have our life in that spot and not realize it. So is that, what Jesus, is that what's happening with Jesus? Did Jesus not make God the center of his life and so he's experiencing spiritual darkness and alienation? That's how, kind of how it works with us. That's not what's happening here because uh, Jesus' experience is not that he has had these track record of actions of pulling away and disconnecting from God. Quite the opposite. And so this story is showing us God, despite Jesus, never pulling away. God, God himself pulling away. In the Bible, there's this blessing that we often say, we'll say it today at the end of the service, and I'll say it to you, and you're receiving words of God that he always wants his people to hear. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord, turn his face toward you and give you his peace. When Jesus was on the cross, that blessing was revoked, and he was experiencing the reverse of it. May you not be blessed. May I not guard you, but I'm going to leave you. May my face shine away from you. May my face turn from you and leave you alone. That's what Jesus experiences. That's what we're meant to see in this. And I don't think the original, the bystander who brought the wine vinegar on a sponge, I don't think that person had this in mind, but I think Mark had it in mind by telling it to us. How he tells us what the man says after he gives him the the wine vinegar. His first words are, now leave him alone. I don't think that person saying that quite knew how perfect of a verbal picture that was of what was happening. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Now leave him alone. He's, there's nothing anyone could have done. It's so ironic. Now leave him alone. As if something people could have done would have helped. As if something anyone around could have done would have made it better for Jesus. You know, encouraging words, singing kumbaya. 
the story shows us Jesus connected complete, disconnected completely from God, alienated more than ever on the deep capital A level. Completely. There's nothing that could have made it worse. Now leave him alone. He's completely alone. And so it's... In, Jesus, in his darkest hour, is completely legitimate in crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And on one level, we can uh, relate to that. Maybe you have an old college friend or a high school friend or even further back, a, a, a kid you grew up with. And maybe you even have like that relationship, that personal kind of tender relationship where you say, my, you know, my friend, or you have some nickname. I don't know. You know, maybe your friend's nickname is Bunny, and you say, my bunny, you know. My bunny, why are you not returning my calls? Why do you not call anymore? My, you know, my, mo- my mother, my son, my daughter, my sister, my brother, my friend, my neighbor, why don't you return my texts? We can relate to that. What, have you ever had that with someone where they kind of disconnect for a while? Or maybe for good, and you say, why? Why? We connect with that and that's that personal, personal, my God, that Jesus says. It was a very unusual way to talk about God in his day. How do you make sense of that? And on one level, we, we get it on our level, but this is the, the Bible tells us this is Jesus the Son and God the Father. How do we make sense of him having to cry out in this way and say, you've forsaken me, you've left me completely. Has um, Jesus done something to go out of favor with the Father? Earlier, the Gospel writer Mark was very clear to show us at Jesus' baptism, the voice comes the other way. It comes from heaven and it says, this is my son. My. This is my son. My beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Did something happen that Jesus is no longer his beloved son in whom he's well pleased? How do you make sense of it? That's a very natural puzzle that we're supposed to try to figure out. And Mark helps us as he carries on with the story and he tells us that in verse 37, in verse 38, in verse 39, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood in front of Jesus and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. So Jesus lets out this dying cry with his last breath and the cry is very loud and at that moment it tears some veil and, or curtain at the temple and it's, it's, it's written in the way that it's like that cry went out. Jesus' cry was an action, a death, a final death action that did something, that tore the curtain. And scholars will argue about, was it, there's some different curtains in the temple, and was it this veil, or was it this curtain, which one was it, and I think it was this one. I don't know that it really matters, because in ancient Israel, and in the religion that Jesus grew up with, the temple was the place where all the anti-alienation exercises were performed. There was the theology that we're all broken, we're all sinful, and so we're going to go out of favor with God, and so there's this temple, and it, and it wasn't the people's idea. God told them to build it and told them what to do in it and gave them these practices. 
The temple was full of the anti-alienation practices to get you in favor with God again. Offerings, sacrifices. And there were some barriers separating different you know, levels of connection with God. Levels of intensity of his presence. For Jesus to have his, at his death this cry to go out that affects the temple in any way basically is a huge statement saying there's something that is actually happening through his death that changes that system of getting unalienated or reconciled with God. And that one is crumbling and breaking down and the new one is it's Jesus himself. In Colossians chapter 1, as Christians begin to understand this story and what it means and what was being said here, it says, let me get it right, Colossians. I don't know if I'm going to find it. I should have flagged it. There it is. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the, anybody? Cross. The cross. Something, it's not just, you see how Jesus' death is portrayed consistently by those who saw it happen, by those who learned about it and became Christians later. It's, it's described not as just a death, a sad death of a brave man or a great teacher. It's described as an, as an actual action that did something when it happened. It did something that changed everything, changed all things. Not, not like the way that a death of a, of a key figure can transform a movement and and things can snowball and catch fire and because, you know, the death of such a noble, good person and it catches on. Not like that. Like it, it actually did something in itself right then. That's how it's talked about in Scripture. And just to add to that, there's the centurion, this soldier standing nearby, who says, he, see, he sees it happen, he looks at the cross, and he says, surely this man was the son of God. This is someone who shouldn't have said that. He's, he's used to saying, he's, you know, he's a brutal man. He's a lo- man loyal to Caesar. That's why he's become in charge of a hundred soldiers himself. And he's overseeing things. And he's seen a lot of things. And he knows that he gets forward in life and is successful in life when he says, Caesar is the son of God. And in this moment, he loses himself in the moment of what he sees happen, of this death cry going out and the temple curtain tearing. And he says, surely this man is the son of God. It's, it's the weirdest thing that ever happened in this story. We don't feel it that way, but it's a very strange thing to have happen at this moment. But in many ways, this man is the first Christian. Because what Christians have done ever since this moment is learn to look at the cross and have their worldview transformed have their way of life transformed. We would love that Jesus would come and teach us how to simply deal with our small, lowercase a alienation in all of our lives. We all, you all come with something this morning. 
that you can think of, alienation in a relationship, disconnect. We would love it if there was Jesus bringing answers for small... If, you know, the text would say, Jesus died and let out this last cry and the, the parking ticket was torn in two from top to bottom. You know, the divorce papers were torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus let out this cry and the Jim Crow laws were cut in two from top to bottom. The Zimmerman verdict was torn in two from top to bottom. Those are all small a, lowercase. The, the barrier between you and God was torn in two from top to bottom. And there's a new anti-alienation way. And it's Jesus. Look at the cross. It'll change your worldview, it'll change your life. It'll reframe everything. If you finally deal with big, cap, all caps, A, alienation in your life. You go to the cross. You know how in, in, often in our conflicts, there's two sides to it, obviously. and I know sometimes it's one-sided, um, especially in all my conflicts. No, you know, but sometimes it's legitimately one-sided, but most of the time, in the end, if it's to be dealt with, there's a, a, you know, really a measure of two apologies to some degree going on and two, you know, actions of forgiveness or multiple on both sides. Um, On the cross, when you look at the cross, what you're seeing is the most one-sided alienation issue. issue or relationship that's ever existed. It's totally one-sided. Me and God, that's a one-sided alienation. I can never shove off the issue of my disconnect with God onto someone else or something else, or let alone on God, the other partner in the relationship. And you know, in your relationships, often you're playing the fairness card in these alienation issues and kind of holding out from reconciliation in one way or another because you're playing the fairness card. I wasn't treated fairly. A person's toxic. All my friends agree with me. Um, it hurts too much. Uh, I'm done. I don't really need to. I'm just, you know, don't need them in my life. Don't want to go there. Whatever it is, you're somehow playing the fairness card. On the, when you look at the cross, you see an alienation relationship and God refused to play the fairness card. He, in fact, he went completely the other way, thank God. He went completely the other way and took on all the unfairness and all the alienation, alienation and it all landed on the sun because he's so focused on bringing you home and on that embrace that we sung about earlier and the reconciliation. Do you, do you know that deep alienation you have? And have you, do you know the certainty with which the writer Mark and all the gospel writings after that, how, how much they just want you to know how certain it is that you have been brought back in? There's no more any of the hoops to jump through over there in the temple or over here in this religion or over here in what the world tells you to do to get your life right. There's no more hoops to do to be okay in God's sight. He put that all on the cross. Look to the cross. It'll settle 
your alienation issues. And then all your relationships will be perfect. Right? That's what Christians have. Well, okay. Uh, they, you know, that would be a legitimate question, you know. Because theoretically, if all Christians sense the big R, the capital R reconciliation of the cross, then it would, it has the power to set right all relationships. And you say, but there's, you know, boy, I know some Christians. Or you say, I know myself, and that's not true. But what's the difference? The difference is you can have, if you're a Christian, if you set your eyes in your life, you set them on the cross, just like the centurion, your worldview can be transformed and you can know, you can finally settle your deep alienation that's just eating away at you. And what will happen is, the more you set your eyes on the cross, the more you look purely at the cross with your life, the more you can figure out how your life can reflect on and be centered around the cross of Jesus, this is what will happen. You won't even, it won't even be so much intentionality in your relationships, it'll start to ooze out. You'll start to be defined by reconciliation from the inside out. And you'll bring, naturally, actions of reconciliation out. You'll, you'll catch yourself doing it, is what I'm trying to say. Because you're so filled with and changed by God's loving reconciliation with you. Let's pray that we can do that as a church. God of grace, will you help us as we um, have such brokenness in our human relationships? And some of us today are struck with a relationship that has not, the, the, the knot has not been tied up right. And there's loose ends. And our actions have basically just perpetuated alienation or disconnect instead of expressing the gospel and pursuing it. We may feel very convicted by that, or we may just feel struck for the first time about how our hearts are alienated from you. Or we may have just looked at the cross of Jesus in a complete new way, and we're eager to know more, wherever we find ourselves. Let this be a place that's safe to explore this reconciliation a place in a church that's filled with actions of reconciliation, a place where it's okay to say, I'm sorry, a place where it's people eagerly say, I forgive you, just like you've done that with us on the cross. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.